Welcome uh, to the LSE. Uh, my name is Martin Lodge and I'm Professor of Political Science and Public Policy uh, in the Department of Government and the Centre for Analysis of Risk and Regulation um, at the LSE. Uh, today I'm really pleased and honoured uh, to welcome Annelise Dodds um, to, um, to our uh, online session here. Um, Annelise is um, the Labour and Cooperative Member of Parliament for Oxford East uh, and she's also the first ever and current shadow chancellor, female and current chancellor of the Exchequer. Um, she is, however, also one of us, so to speak. She's an alumni of the Department of Government. Uh, she completed her PhD uh, in, the 2000, in 2006. Uh, she then briefly uh, taught in the department. In fact, I remember distinctly a joint session on representative bureaucracy um, uh, before um, Annelise then uh, moved over to positions at King's College and Aston University. Um, after that, um, and before becoming an MP, uh, she was a member of the European Parliament, uh, where she quickly established herself as one of the most influential voices in uh, areas of um, financial regulation. Uh, today's uh, talk will be in particular about the relationship between uh, health uh, and economy uh, in the context of COVID. Uh, for those of you who liked tweeting um, for Twitter users. So please use hashtag for today's event, which is hashtag LSE COVID-19. Uh, this event is recorded uh, and uh, subject uh, to technology working out. This will also become a podcast. Um, so Annelise um, will, will uh, give um, a brief talk. And after that, um, we will have time for questions and answers. So please use the question and answer feature um, at the bottom of your screen. Um, I will uh, then receive these questions and I will try to be as uh, um, kind of uh, as, as wide uh, uh, in, in my questioning um, to the speaker. So please also add uh, your name and affiliation. Uh, you can be just a member of the public if that is your affiliation. Um, and we are particularly keen to hear from our students, from our alumni, from incoming students. Um, so please uh, identify yourself um, in your questions. But now um, over to you, um, Annelise. Um, thank you very much uh, for joining uh, us. Well, it's such a pleasure, Martin, and it was really wonderful to receive this invitation from the Department of Government. As Martin just said, I um, was very honoured to have been a student in the Department of Government a very, very long time ago, I must say, and then to have briefly served as a postdoc fellow. Um, and it's particularly lovely to be here with Martin, who was such a fantastic colleague and obviously has done so much for the field of risk and regulation and indeed public policy and the study of the state more generally. Um, I'm really looking forward to the discussion, to the Q&A in a moment. But as Martin mentioned, I wanted to just start the discussion by offering a, a few reflections really about the relationship between our economy and public health. Um, as I think we're all sadly aware, the UK is currently experiencing the highest death rate from coronavirus in Europe, as well as the highest total number of deaths in Europe. And in tandem, we've suffered the worst recession of any major economy, the worst recession in all of the G7 after the crisis hit. Um, and I want to set out why I think these two facts are not unrelated, why they're interconnected. I would argue that at the heart of much of the mismanagement of this crisis over the last 10 months has been an insistence that you can treat the health of a nation and its economy as distinct entities to be traded off against one another. Um, you either, according to this argument, choose health and lock down the economy completely in a bid to prevent the virus from spreading, or you choose jobs, easing restrictions as rapidly as you're able to get people back to work. But this narrative isn't only untrue, it's self-defeating. By setting up a false choice between health and our economy, I would argue that our government has chosen neither. And rather than choosing jobs, we've actually seen record redundancies in the UK. We had slowness to lockdown last March. That meant a higher death toll before public health measures were imposed. But it also meant that when the lockdown did come, it lasted longer and caused greater economic damage. And we've seen since that pattern repeated twice over I would say that the Chancellor's desperation to reopen the economy as quickly as possible and extricate the Treasury from its various support schemes 
has been swept away by successive waves of the pandemic. And we've been forced obviously into a short-lived tier system, another set of nationwide restrictions, the cancellation of Christmas plans, and now of course back into a third lockdown. And this stop-start approach has done untold harm to jobs and businesses. We've seen an unanticipated continuation and then repeated tinkering with economic support packages with the furlough scheme extended a matter of hours before it was due to expire. And after a replacement scheme was already on the books, employers and employees can't plan on that basis. This hammers confidence, both in the ability to get a grip on the health crisis and in the overall state of the economy. And we saw this in the run up to the first lockdown, even before the government ordered people indoors and businesses to close, substantial voluntary social distancing had already started to take place. As the IMF has argued, when people fear that the virus is getting out of hand, they reduce social contact and economic activity along with it. They do that spontaneously. The Bank of England notes that this can lead to recession even in the absence of legally enforced measures. So the challenge for policymakers during a pandemic is to work out when and how to intervene, not whether. And there are clearly an array of defences that can be adopted with James Reason's Swiss cheese model providing an effective visualisation of the layers of different measures required. Measures to prevent the disease from entering communities, to identify where it is, to isolate it, and then to reduce its transmissibility. Social distancing is obviously only one defensive measure and one which affects different groups in very different ways. Young workers in insecure jobs in non-essential sectors suffer much more than those who are retired. And if uncoordinated and voluntary social distancing still does not get the virus under control, especially in the absence of effective test trace and isolate measures, and the R rate, that replacement rate, or infectivity rate remains above one, then we've seen how a severe national lockdown becomes inevitable. Indeed, the UK has gone through this cycle, as I mentioned, no less than three times. There has to be another way. And this is to accept that while it has obviously been hugely disruptive, managed social distancing has unfortunately been necessary. It has reduced the transmission of the virus and kept it under control, preventing the NHS from being overwhelmed. And it has avoided the stop-start nature of repeated lockdowns that cause so much economic harm. But to be properly effective, managed social distancing must go hand in hand with an economic support package that lets businesses and workers know where they stand. It also requires, as I said, a properly functioning test, trace and isolate system. Instead, we've seen in the UK, the government spend £22 billion on a privately outsourced test and trace programme, which has often bypassed local authority expertise and failed to deliver. And we have an isolate system that is simply not fit for purpose. Done properly, managed social distancing and self-isolation both have positive economic impacts. They prevent people from spreading the virus and they make wholesale national lockdowns less likely. Managed social distancing, though, requires government intervention to work, a set of clear, understandable rules for everyone to observe, and economic support for affected businesses and workers while those rules are in place. The same is true of self-isolation. People need clarity over when and how to self-isolate, and they must be enabled to do so without falling into debt. And here, very sadly, the UK has been failing. Evidence from SAGE shows that many people are not self-isolating because of the potentially catastrophic economic effects for them personally. A paper published last week suggested just three in 10 people with symptoms are self-isolating with financial hardship, low socioeconomic status and an inability to work from home all linked to barriers. Gig economy workers are reportedly avoiding getting tested for fear of the lost income that accompanies self-isolation. Now, statutory sick pay in the UK is just £95 
a week and the health secretary has conceded he would not be able to live on it. Despite repeated questioning, the government has failed to commission or publish evidence about the deterrent impact of failing to improve statutory sick pay. Instead, a new system, a £500 test and trace support payment was introduced, automatic for those claiming qualifying benefits, but discretionary for those who aren't. Only one in eight workers is automatically eligible, with others reliant on the discretion of their local authority. This results in a postcode lottery. Camden Council has approved 75% of applications for its discretionary payments. Sandwell has approved just 16%. And many councils are running out of money for these discretionary payments, leading to a first-come, first-served scenario. The government has said funds need to last until January the 31st, as if the pandemic will somehow respect that arbitrary date. Now, the arrival of effective vaccines has been wonderful to see, but even if the current timetable is accelerated as it needs to be, the rollout of these vaccines will take time. And in addition, we must be prepared for scenarios where new variants of coronavirus require new vaccines. And so we may sadly be living with this virus for a while yet, all of which means we have to get an integrated health and economic response right. That requires three core elements. First, an economic support package that goes hand in hand with public health restrictions, enabling managed social distancing to protect the NHS and secure the economy. That package needs to be clearly communicated so businesses and workers know exactly what to expect in the months ahead. Second, much clearer communications around the test and trace support payment, both for those who are automatically eligible, but also crucially a single clear set of guidelines for the discretionary element to end the postcode lottery. And third, government must commit to giving local authorities the resources they need to make those discretionary payments. If someone needs support, they need to be able to access it, no matter where they live, no matter where and when they develop symptoms. Councils have already had to spend £750,000 of their own finances to do the right thing. And this when their budgets are stretched to breaking point. I would argue that the Chancellor's called this crisis wrong time and again, from a succession of winter economic plans that had to be continually revised because each iteration sought to give the bare minimum in economic support and then was overtaken by events, to disappearing altogether over Christmas only to return earlier this month with almost nothing new to say and precious little clarity for businesses as to what they can expect in the months to come. Much of this seems to stem from a belief that the economy is only well served from a total lifting of restrictions and a removal of all economic support as soon as possible. But with the virus sadly still with us and continuing to impact on demand, the Chancellor needs to think again. If we're to secure the economy, protect the NHS and rebuild Britain, then we need instead a responsible approach to economic policy making. One that sees the economic response as embedded in the public health response and vice versa, rather than the two elements working against each other. Thank you very much, Annalise, for this. Um, so now it's the time for questions and things have been flooding in. So I will uh, now to try to do justice uh, uh, to the various questions. So shall I um, just kick off? Um, yeah, are you ready? Okay, so first question. Question from um, David Merrill, um, member of the public. Uh, so here, uh, sort of the, the question is, um, you know, could you sort of um, consider a bit the financial constraints that, uh, you know, kind of as a UK government uh, will face, especially, you know, given the kind of the three conditions you, you just highlighted? And, um, you know, do you think the UK is facing sort of some risks of insolvency or run on bonds and, and such like, um, or, um, you know, is there sort of even some advantages of, you know, not being in the Eurozone and, and such like. So what do you think is sort of the, 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 the territory or the terrain you have to navigate, uh, you know, given the kind of ballooning debt burden? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's a very important question. Thank you, David. And I would say currently we're in a situation where obviously interest rates are very low, where it has been possible for government's debt to be financed, for that to be done at low cost. 
But of course, none of us can predict exactly what will happen, uh, certainly into the long term, I would argue, around interest rates. And so we do need to ensure that we're doing all we can to get public finances onto a secure footing. Now, the vast majority of international commentators would argue, and, and I think they're correct, that actually the way to do that in the short and medium term is to work extremely hard to try and preserve and promote economic activity. We're currently in a situation where obviously the UK has had that particularly deep recession last year, one which has hit our economy very hard indeed. We've seen record redundancies and really government's focus right now has got to be on trying to keep businesses going, trying to keep people in work and get those who've become unemployed speedily back into work. And that's critical for the public finances. Why? Because we've been in a situation when the tax base has been shrinking. It's been shrinking because businesses have been folding, people have been losing their work, they haven't had the confidence to be spending. So consumption taxes uh, uh, revenue has been going down as well. So we need to prevent that additional damage. We need to make sure the economic capacity is there for the future. If on the contrary, we saw a very speeding, sorry, speedy uh, fiscal tightening now with, for example, um, increased taxation. In fact, we are seeing that in relation to council tax. If we saw that going even further, I think the situation would be even more challenging. And indeed, if we saw cuts to spending as well, I think that would be uh, the wrong direction for the UK to take because it would really diminish confidence. It would be reducing some of that economic activity again at a time when we need to be building it up. So we've got to really work hard to maintain and, and grow the size of the UK economy right now. That's got to be the focus. Um, of course, into the longer term, we need to ensure that the public finances are on a sustainable footing. And I set out, I did a, um, a lecture last week where I set out where I think we need to be aiming. We really need to have, you know, sensible fiscal rules in the UK rather than rules which I feel have been quite politically driven. Instead, we need to have rules which focus on building resilience, making sure that we do invest in ways that will, again, be growing that economic capacity for the future, but so that we will have ballast for future crises that might impact on us. Of course, future pandemics, but also the climate crisis and other shocks to international trade and matters that could have a very negative impact on the UK economy. Question by Beth Phillips, uh, Beth, uh, an LSE alumni. So um, uh, she suggests or questions, you know, uh, I mean, that you highlighted that the UK is vulnerable as a service-based um, economy. Um, so um, what is the vision of, you know, the economy to, to make it, you know, in a rebuild Britain to, you know, make it more resilient? Is there sort of a need to move away or sort of do the characteristics of the service economy have to change? Yeah, thanks very much, Martin, and, and thanks, Beth. I think that's an incredibly important question. Um, I'm, I mean, I would argue that while I think some of the economic impact um, that we've seen on the UK has been due to our, our overall mix between services and manufacturing, actually, we've seen a very hard hit on manufacturing as well. So I don't think the impact has been uniquely down to the, uh, the, the overall mix of our economy. But I think we do need to see um, uh, not just, I would say, uh, more of a focus on ensuring that we um, both attract and retain particularly advanced manufacturing, but we also need to see productivity growth in many areas of services as well. And we need to see that right across the country. Of course, we've seen a real growth, sadly, in the gap between levels of productivity um, growth between different regions of the United Kingdom. Um, we need to work very, very hard to arrest that. How do we do it? Um, first of all, we need to have a genuinely effective industrial policy. Over recent years, we have seen a recognition that industrial strategy is necessary after a long period in the UK when that phrase was, was virtually banned, unfortunately. But we need it to be effective. We need to make sure that in particular, those issues around skills, training, educational disadvantage that they are focused on much more systematically. I mean, we've been seeing, for example, the number of apprenticeships going down, particularly amongst disadvantaged young people over time. That must be changed into the future. But we also need to face up to issues that I would argue haven't been at the top of the agenda 
economically, um, even although they really do merit very focused attention. First of all, I would say around competition policy, where we've seen a concentration in a number of different sectors in the UK economy, where it's becoming increasingly difficult in some sectors for new operators, for small businesses to operate. I think that's been exacerbated by the growth of the platform-based economy, which in some cases has trended towards monopoly or, or monopsony. So being uh, you know, the single buyer um, uh, of labour as well as potentially the single uh, seller in some areas. I think that's um, something that we need to focus attention on. We need much more muscular competition policy to drive innovation. But we also need to look at the returns to that innovation as well. And, you know, over the last few years, we've seen increasing returns to what many would call unproductive assets compared with the returns to labour. So we've had a very long squeeze on incomes, on wages, uh, the longest actually since Napoleonic times um, uh, over the last 10 years, only started to be arrested relatively recently before the crisis struck. Um, and we've seen that real concentration in those returns over time. Um, I think that's been very, very problematic. You know, we haven't seen the investment in, in capital, in plant that we would want to see. I think government's got to work, work much harder so that we see those returns to innovation coming through. So there's much more incentives for returns from productive investment compared to the returns to um, unproductive assets into the future. So much to be done there. Okay. Thank you. Um, uh, next question from Kieran Connolly, uh, King's alumni. So we're moving uh, your institutions here. Um, so, uh, so here uh, the question is, uh, you know, um, so as the question sort of focuses on sort of the idea that a lot of support and so on is directed at existing uh, the existing economy, existing business, existing you know people in work, rather than those people who may enter the job market and as, a, as at this point can't uh, in that sense. So, is there a case to be made for also thinking about support measures for those who you know are not in work and would like to be? So, you know, the lost generation, as some people might like to call it, of recent graduates. Absolutely, and I think it's a very important point that Kieran has, has made there. Um, and I think here it's interesting to compare the overall approach, of course, that's been taken by different countries to this crisis. Um, if we look at the situation in the UK, we've had um, obviously an, an attempt at a form of wage replacement, um, not as sophisticated an approach, I would argue, as we've seen in, in Germany, for example, where you've had that married to incentives for training for the workforce. Um, where you've had a much longer term approach being taken. Um, and we can contrast that approach of um, kind of uh, forms of wage maintenance, essentially, to retain that relationship with the employer to the situation that has existed in the United States, obviously, where instead there was a, a really strong boost to um, out-of-work support to unemployment benefit, of course, coming from a, a very low level. But of course, the UK's level of support for unemployment is, is very, very low in international comparison as well in terms of the, the replacement rate from universal credit compared to the average wage. Um, I think it is incredibly important that we do see a focus now on helping people into work as speedily as possible. Um, and there needs to be um, at least two elements of this. So first of all, we need to have effective measures to help those, particularly those who've become unemployed, speedily back into work. We know that if a young person, for example, has spent a substantial amount of time out of work, then that can have as much as um, as much of an impact on their income as up, up to a fifth of their income in lifetime terms compared to if they'd stayed in work during that period. So it has a really significant impact on them individually. It has a significant impact, obviously, on the economy as well. And I personally would argue that, sadly, although we've seen a number of initiatives being announced in the UK over recent months, they're not actually at the scale, nor are they sufficiently targeted to be helping those people who are becoming unemployed now. So the numbers of young people moving into the kickstart scheme, for example, are very slow, uh, sorry, very small compared to the number of people they need to be covering. Looks like that will also be the case for the adult version or, or uh, sorry, older version, because it's starting from 25 uh, uh, of that employment support called Restart. So we need to learn from what's worked before. Uh, in this context, trying to create an entirely new system from, uh, uh, from scratch doesn't work. Instead, 
involving local institutions that already have expertise on this, you know, local authorities, um, mayor, mayoral combined authorities, business associations, further education colleges, pulling them together to deliver that support tends to be much more effective than grafting something completely new on. So we've got to do that. We've got to support those people who become unemployed. But we also need to, of course, make sure the opportunities are then available for people to get into work. The jobs have got to be there in the first place. And I think there we need to have much stronger ambitions. Um, we've seen in France and Germany, for example, very strong stimulus packages, particularly towards the green economy. There's very, very significant ambitions for moving towards the technologies of the future. And myself and Ed Miliband, who's a shadow business secretary, we released a report a few months ago now setting out how we think if capital investment was accelerated into the next 18 months, that could support the creation of very substantial amounts of additional employment, some of which could come on stream really pretty quickly. You know, if we had a very substantial retrofitting programme across the UK, sadly, because of the general poor performance, unfortunately, of a lot of homes in the UK in energy efficiency terms, you would be able to support employment right across the country, including in many of those communities where we have quite high levels of youth unemployment in particular. Okay, thank you. Um, so we've got now a question from Kieran, uh, an undergraduate student in the government department. So here, uh, uh, Kieran cites um, uh, uh, apparently research from Morgan Stanley and Goldman Sachs, which sort of suggests that uh, as a pandemic is, you might say, sort of has an asymmetric impact, uh, you know, that uh, some parts of the economy are doing quite well, you know, less hurt than other parts, which is particular workers and small businesses. I mean, is there, you know, I mean, what do you think are sort of the challenges or solutions even to sort of deal with this, you might say, sort of um, asymmetric or, you know, um, yeah, impact uh, and, you know, kind of how to target and support uh, where it's needed rather than less needed uh, and, you know, given also the political strengths of these parts of the economy, you might say. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a very interesting question. I mean, we haven't had, um, in most people's living memories, I mean, arguably, we could say, obviously, in the Second World War, there was an impact, very clear impact on economic activity. But we haven't had for many decades a situation where government has had to choose to explicitly shut down a number of sectors of the economy. So very obviously there's been a concentrated impact on you know, the visitor economy, all of those areas which rely on, on footfall essentially, hospitality, um, performing arts. I think we all know the cases and we all know the impact. I think it's critically important here that we move away from uh, what I feel has been a, a very unhelpful um, approach towards so-called viability that we saw last year. I mean, actually, before the crisis, sectors of the UK economy, like the creative industries and hospitality, had been growing pretty strongly. They'd actually been, uh, particularly in export terms, very significant for the UK. Um, and then we saw a bit of a slide into some claims that, well, these industries are becoming unviable. I think with the advent of the vaccines, um, I think it's, it's pretty clear that, you know, we should be having a, a very strong uh, future for many of those industries but obviously there's a short to medium term uh, very difficult situation for them until uh, social distancing becomes unnecessary and we do have that grip on the public health crisis so I think we need to preserve that capacity that will be very important um, but then secondly I think there's been an unequal impact not just on those different sectors but of course on different groups of people as well um, and I think it's important that's reflected uh, in government policy. So we've had some suggestions uh, coming from government that, for example, we just need to almost um, look forward to when restrictions are lifted and all those people who've been saving will suddenly start to spend their money and that will get our economy moving again. Of course, I hope that we will be in a situation where people will be able to uh, go out onto their high streets and into restaurants and theatres and everything else. Um, but we cannot rely on that because actually most of the evidence suggests that more people have seen a hit to their income than have been able to build up their savings. So this is very unequal picture and we'll have quite high numbers of people who've ended up in really severe financial difficulties. So there are many measures that need to be taken 
to ensure those people are able to build up their financial resilience again. And you know, of course, this isn't a short term issue. I think it was about a quarter of UK families who didn't even have £100 in the bank when this crisis hit. So in the longer term, we've got to act to build up people's financial resilience so that we don't end up facing another crisis in the way we have this time round. Uh, which um, leads me to a sort of a huge question posed by Alice Morris, uh, which is, uh, you know, uh, do you think the thinking, you know, again, or, you know, in a renewed fashion about universal basic income is sort of one way to, to think about sort of, you know, support either during a pandemic or even in a more long term way? Uh, small hot potato question for you. <laughs> yes, of course. And I'm, I'm terribly sorry. It's probably the impact of homeschool in my household. But there was a, a freezing just in the middle of the question. But I think I got most of it from Alice about whether now is the time uh, to be looking at a form of universal basic income. Um, so uh, a really interesting question. I mean, I suppose um, I come to this always with another question back, which is what is meant by UBI? Because I think there are so many different definitions of that term. Um, I mean, I would argue that you know, many aspects of the UK's social security system have been shown to be not fit for purpose during this crisis. So the fact that you know, it's heavily conditional, um, people have to wait for a very long time to receive support, and then you still have um, sanctioning, for example, being applied to, you know, for example, workers in their early 60s um, who've just become unemployed for the first time. That simply doesn't make sense. So, you know, if UBI refers to a less conditional approach towards social security, um, then I think, you know, this crisis has shown that that's very sensible. Equally, however, you have some who would describe UBI um, in a, a very different way. They would say, well, it's got to apply to a system where you essentially bundle up all of the social security spending and then divide it equally amongst everybody. Um, I, I don't think that would be sensible at all because you know, very obviously, we have people with a variety of different needs in the UK. You know, should I receive the same amount of support uh, compared to some of my neighbours? You know, for example, a single parent with uh, disabilities, which inhibits her ability uh, to, to work with a number of dependent children, for example. Now, I don't think that I should receive the same amount of support as someone in those situations. And if UBI proponents, that kind of UBI proponent says, well, don't worry, we'll just top up that person's income through other mechanisms, then the question that naturally comes is, well, how would we pay uh, for that? Um, if we say we'll use a sovereign wealth fund, well, that's an interesting idea. It would take a number of years to build it up. But of course, we might want to reduce people's costs through those kinds of approaches, for example, by ensuring that there's much greater availability of genuinely affordable um, and social and council housing, which would, would reduce the amount of income that people needed in the first place. So I think you know, this is a big definitional question. It's one that we discuss a lot within uh, the Labour Party, but uh, probably the starting point is, well, what do we mean by that term in the first place? I think we've got to get that right before we can move further on it. Okay, um, so uh, uh, now I've got sort of one question from Ruth um, Jacob, who is a senior lecturer at University of East London or UEL. Um, so uh, to what extent do you see, you know, can further and higher education sort of play a role in, reshaping, you know, through their, let's call it educational or pedagogy or teaching help sort of shape sort of a future more resilient economy. So, uh, you know, what is their role? What, they, what should they be doing? Um, wow, I mean, that's... Both a... sides, uh, you know what you, we are doing anyway. Yeah. Uh, that, that's an absolutely fascinating and, and very important question. Um, and I, I have to say, I've been quite encouraged in some ways around um, some of the public discourse around the contribution of universities and research in general. I mean, arguably, we've gone through a, a very difficult period where there was a, a lot of denigration of experts. I don't hear that kind of language now. I hear actually a lot of respect for research. I hear, you know, a lot of interest in um, what academia has to offer um, and a lot of concern really about the future of um, the sector and of course that relates to other questions about what's happened with with Brexit um, and also what's happening physically in our universities with students um, obviously having to access learning online and all the pressures that puts on them and indeed on academics and the impact on mental health as well as finances and everything else. I mean in terms of the 
kind of pedagogical questions. I think that's a, that's a really interesting question and one that it would be fantastic to, uh, to, to discuss uh, more into the future. I certainly don't think this is something that should be um, kind of dictated by politicians, quite the opposite. You know, I think this uh, kind of debate must come from uh, academia itself. Um, having said that, I always feel that, and in fact, LSE, I think, has exemplified this throughout all of its history. I feel that the, um, the kind of basis of a, a lot of research that's carried out and, and a lot of teaching um, in different communities, in different organisations, having those linkages, uh, you know, to real life experiences is enormously important. And so that will surely always be a positive thing. But in terms of what exact paradigms uh, should be used into the future, as I say, I certainly wouldn't want to uh, have any driving of that coming from the, the political realm, quite the opposite. So you're upholding the Haldane principle when it comes to higher education, I, uh, I'm glad to hear. Uh, I've got um, another question, uh, which is sort of uh, somewhat related to other parts of the state, you might say, from Andrew Jones, I spotted, an LSE alumni and uh, working in local government. I mean, you know, um, I mean, given, you know, how what you said in your speech about sort of the central role that you foresee about in local for local government uh, in that sense, um, I mean, does that not require a fundamentally different view of how central government thinks about uh, local government sort of rather than a sort of a stereotype dysfunctional delivery organization which should be bypassed to you know partly sort of a source of democracy and partly sort of a competent partner I mean so how do you think you can sort of uh, reset or you know if this needs resetting how do you view that relationship in particular? Yeah I mean I really think there must be that resetting I, I would actually broaden it even beyond local government to say this applies to the relationship with the devolved governments as well um, and also indeed to the relationship with um, you know metro mayoral authorities also so I suppose more regional um, approach that I think during this crisis we've seen the value of coordinating institutions you know those bodies that can actually link together different actors whether we're talking about businesses individual volunteers different organisations, getting them working together. I mean, we've already been talking about that in relation to employment support, where I think we've seen some fantastic examples. I mean, I'm aware of what's happened in Greater Manchester, for example, also in Blackpool, around support for people back into work. And I don't think their systems would have been as effective at all if they'd been delivered uh, just from Whitehall. They're really built on that, that really intense local knowledge and connections with local partners. Um, how can you build that kind of capacity into the future? Well, I think part of it uh, does come down to the, the brass tacks of having much more dependable and secure resourcing, to be honest. You know, I think we're in a situation where local authorities are, are very effective bodies because they've had to be um, in many cases, you know, particularly in more deprived communities. They've seen their unit of resource being really squeezed down. Um, over the last 10 years to become very efficient indeed. They need to have much more stability for the future around their financing, I think, so they can have longer term planning so that they can keep um, staff with them so that they can develop more capacity in, in planning and um, uh, again, kind of delivering some of those plans around, you know, greening town centres, villages, communities. They're going to rely on local authorities having that planning capacity, ability to conclude contracts and, and do so effectively and to really drive uh, that process. But I think it also just involves a, a mindset and it involves, you know, not shifting. I mean, it might sound like I'm stereotyping, but it has felt a bit like sometimes during this crisis, there's been a bit of a blame game. So, you know, we all remember what happened around financial support uh, before uh, the tier system uh, was brought in, in particular areas where it felt like, you know, central government's trying to kind of devolve devolve blame and not have a really open relationship. I think we've got to get beyond that. We need to have a sensible relationship which acknowledges genuine partnership. You know, there are different functions for different levels of government. And I think there's some good examples here. I mean, actually in Wales, it's quite interesting that you've had obviously different parties involved, Labour Party, but Conservatives as well, and Plaid Cymru, and actually quite good working between the local level um, and the, the national level in Wales. So I think, you know, a lot to be learned from that into the future. Okay. Um, now, uh, again, you know, I mean, we're riding through the topics here, so we're uh, you now on something different. And uh, now from a, a question from Jess Parker from the BBC. So uh, Keir Starmer says he wants to scrap universal credit. Um, would you do this in the first term of a Labour government? And uh, 
you know, what would replace it, uh, if anything, I guess. Um, yeah, so just the, the key word here is replace. Um, we want to make sure that we have a social security system that is effective. And as we were talking about a moment ago, the current system where you know people have to wait for five weeks, if they don't wait for five weeks to get that support, then yes, they can get some support, but it's just a loan. So locking people, many people into debt immediately. And then the other aspects of that system, uh, for example, we've seen very clearly for self-employed people, all the challenges with the um, really, really quick shutting out of people if they have even quite small amounts of savings, you know, that clearly is going to have to change for the future. And that's why we said that we do want to replace universal credit. We want instead to have a system that is well joined up, one that works effectively, but one that does support people that has far less unintended consequences than the current system. And which isn't, for example, locking people into debt quite quickly as universal credit does if people end up having to take on that loan. In many cases, actually um, uh, ending up in a situation where people for the first time are going into debt because they've received that loan. That's just not sensible. That's not the basis we should be working on into the future. So we obviously would be wanting to um, uh, deliver that as quickly as possible, but we're aware that this is a complex area. And certainly my colleague, uh, Johnny Reynolds, who's our Shadow Secretary of State for the Department of Work and Pensions, he's been talking about you know, the kinds of areas that need to be focused on. But I would say, you know, rather than just looking at the long term, there is a lot that can be done in the short term, actually, as well. And, you know, we said to government, you know, why do we still have this system of a loan uh, after the two weeks? Couldn't we end up with a situation where instead there is a grant to stop people ending up in that situation of debt? That could be done very quickly. And we'd really urge government to take that forward. Thank you. And uh, now a question from Gareth Lewis Shelton. Um, so here's the question is, um, there will be sort of at some point a battle of, uh, uh, you know, I mean, sort of austerity. Uh, and uh, I mean, you know, whatever that is defined. So how can one, you know, bring back, uh, you might say, uh, you know, responsible fiscal policy in, in that sense, uh, in a sort of new, new normal or old new normal or new new normal or however you want to define it. So how do you, you know, I mean, you, you noted also in your the speech, you, you know, you previously gave it also in the one you gave here um, to introduce this session. Um, uh, how can one make sure that one doesn't sort of go back to 2010, despite all the best intentions of not to revisit those kind of um, discourses, put it that way? I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I think it's very important that we do avoid that kind of approach. I would say I feel that internationally the consensus is shifting around this. I think we've had quite clear messages from the IMF, the OECD around this. Also in the UK context, the IFS has been quite clear that they don't feel now is the right time uh, for a, a, a very substantial consolidation. They've been very clear about that. Um, so I think we are in quite a different situation potentially to after 2010, where I personally feel that the international consensus was wrong. And I think it was linked to what then became a very slow period of recovery, particularly for the UK. Um, and one where we've seen uh, actually, you know, slow, slow recovery around a, a number of elements, whether it's the level of people's wages, where we had that very long uh, squeeze on wages or, you know, very, very low private investment growth really bumping along uh, the bottom for a number of years. So we do need to have a different approach. Um, I think that means really focusing on uh, maintaining and building up that economic capacity. You know, that's the overwhelming imperative. But then I would say into the future, once we're um, hopefully beyond this crisis, it's by having a more sensible and, and I would say responsible approach actually to fiscal rules, one which says that we need to have a longer term approach to fiscal rules, one that's very much focused on what's necessary to build resilience um, in the UK economy uh, so that you would have a rule operating you know, across the economic cycle. I think the IFS has set out really interesting ideas about having rolling targets around the deficit. I think that's a sensible way forward. Um, but also then uh, coupling that, I would say, with really strong controls around investment. You know, even the current government has exempted uh, certain forms of investment from its uh, fiscal rules. But I think when we're going to do that, we need to make sure that investment is really focused effectively, that it delivers. And so I said also that we need to 
really be controlling spending and investment much more strongly. Uh, you know, we've got very high numbers of current projects. For example, a third of the projects in the current infrastructure pipeline assessed by the National Audit Office is um, potentially not achievable uh, to plan. Um, that, that's enormous amounts of public money, actually, that potentially won't be focused in the right direction. So we need to have that strong control as well as uh, the correct fiscal rules into the future. Um. And a um, question here from Steve Smallwood via uh, um, the Facebook uh, function. Um, so LSE alumni. Um, so here, um, so kind of, I mean, we've just discussed a lot about sort of the UK at large, but uh, you know, here's sort of the question is um, uh, given, given devolution and the different kind of place, the different devolved regions are in, um, how much scope should there be for sort of different approach for different regions or different you know, nations of the UK? I mean, that's a, a really interesting question. I think we could we could talk about it for a very long time. I suppose it depends on uh, whether we're talking about a different approach specifically to this crisis or more broadly. I mean, I think we have seen, um, I would say, a situation where we haven't always had the conversations between those devolved governments and uh, central Westminster government happening early enough. I think sometimes we've had a bit of a, I would argue, computer says no approach coming from the, the London government. I mean, remember what happened with the Welsh government when they asked if they could access uh, the new furlough scheme. I think it was just a week early and they were told, oh, no, no, you can't possibly. And then when uh, actually the London government decided it did want to adopt a different approach, everything suddenly could change uh, because of that decision having been taken in London. I don't think that's sensible for the future. I think we do need to make sure that, however, there's a, a clearer framework um, for those relationships so that it's clearer where uh, the devolved government stands in relation to um, central government in London. Um, I think that's particularly important around budgeting, actually, where, um, you know, obviously, you know, it is important that in Wales, Scotland and indeed in Northern Ireland, that there can be more predictability around finances. Again, there's been some concerns around that recently. Um, and that's not driven by, I think, a need for, uh, you know, sound finances. You know, I think it's very clear that you have got um, uh, those processes there in many cases. Um, to ensure that there's financial control but you know where there aren't those processes they need to be built up and that's a distinct question I think from the relationship uh, of the different elements of the UK uh, to one another. Okay. Um, which um, I suspect this next question from Hannah Brewerton has uh, you know I mean in my addition to it would have a devolved angle to it too but uh, her question is basically thinking about sort of other countries experiences uh, you know New Zealand China Vietnam and so on um, uh, which have gone for what one might call a zero Covid or no Covid strategy you know whatever the label is I mean do you think this is sort of the, the way to go in in view of your earlier comments and what do you think are the risks and opportunities for embarking on such an approach? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that really what this crisis has taught us um, genuinely is um, the, the fact that those who would suggest um, that there is a neat trade-off between the economy and, and health, unfortunately, have been proven time and time again to be wrong. And when that kind of view is determined policy, actually, we've ended up with a situation that's been very economically damaging as well as um, injurious to public health. And um, I think that Patrick Valance... Um, obviously, um, one of the government's very senior advisors, I mean, he um, set this out quite clearly, saying that actually what's necessary is to have action being taken very speedily. You know, it's really important to act quickly. Um, I think those countries which have acted quickly and resolutely generally have had a much more positive um, uh, uh, outcome from this crisis. In fact, positive is the wrong word to use because it's been very difficult for every uh, country, of course, to deal with. But they've generally had, you know, lower health impacts and less of an impact on their economy. And, you know, putting decisions off, almost kind of crossing fingers and hoping for the best and hoping that the virus almost will go away, that has simply not worked in the UK context. And I think those um, countries which have acknowledged the unfortunate reality that the virus is going to be a challenge for a long period, that therefore we need to work harder against it, they tend to have been the ones which have been more successful. Um, I get sort of one question sort of moving to, you know, I'm just seeing on the 
you know, the most popular question at present, which I haven't asked you, this is um, a question by John Staples, and uh, who, um, referring to a form, uh, previous LSE lecture where people advocated a one-off wealth tax, uh, you know, as sort of one way to, you know, move it forward. Um, I mean, you know, that's something that uh, you are entertaining? I mean, I would say that in the near term, as I mentioned before, I, I do think it's important that government is really focused on protecting economic capacity. I mean, there have been some suggestions that, uh, for example, we could see very speedy change to the capital gains regime. Um, I mean, there are many anomalies within that regime, but do I feel that government has got the bandwidth to sort that out right now and to do so effectively without creating additional loopholes? I'm afraid I'm really not confident that they would be able to achieve that change now. Um, I think we do need to have a more progressive tax system in the future. I mean, to me, that's that's very obvious. I think it's very important uh, that we do need to see that fairer system. Um, But I think it's very important that we really determine how that would work with all the evidence and make sure that any changes are fully backed by the evidence that, that, that they're going to be effective. So I think that means, again, not right now, while we're in the middle of a crisis, trying to create a new regime, and in particular, not doing so in order to avoid any political hit from doing so closer to a general election. You know, we shouldn't have politics driving this. We should really have the interests of the economy at the fore. And sort of on that line, there was a question by Josh Turner, who is an LSE student, who inquires, you know, what what fiscal policies do you support, which uh, the government has sort of sought to implement? Uh, You know, I mean, for example, bounce back loans and so on. So are there sort of examples that you would sort of say that's the right way to go? Yeah, I mean, we we did support um, uh, from the beginning some kind of form of wage support. You know, we advocated to government that they should adopt that approach. Um, uh, As I mentioned before, we we did feel that it should have been linked to incentives uh, for training um, and that it should have been flexible as well from the beginning. That wasn't the case, although some flexibility has been built in. We also supported um, uh, the delivery of the loan support that's gone in. Um, But I would say generally, uh, I think we're concerned that really government hasn't necessarily thought about many of these measures across a longer term. And I think that's particularly been the case around kind of ex-ante conditionality. I mean, I don't think it would have been appropriate to apply ex-post conditions. You know, it wouldn't be right to say, well, certain business um, couldn't have access to the furlough scheme because of, you know, for example, previous tax practice, that would just be very, very unfair on their employees. I don't think that would make sense at all. But we have seen in a number of other countries that where support has been provided, government has reached agreement um, with those uh, benefiting from that support, that there will be a positive impact from it. For example, that it'll be linked to retaining employment um, or in the case of uh, some of the support for aerospace, for example, um, in France, that it would be linked to environmental improvements. Um, I think the fact that generally that hasn't been adopted in the UK has been an issue. So, for example, we've had furlough payments actually being used to pay off people's redundancy periods until relatively recently so clearly not supporting employment at all because there wasn't that conditionality uh, built into the system as I say forward looking not backward looking and I think that has been an issue with many of the schemes so we we do we did support those schemes uh, being created but I think around the design there are a number of remaining issues there. Um, thank you. Uh, now a question from um, Bruno Binetti um, an LSE PhD student so um, you know uh, long-term questions. So, uh, you know, where do you sort of see, um, you know, the place of the UK economy in a sort of global economy post-Brexit? Uh, you know, so where would it like to be? Uh, where would you like it uh, to be? Uh, do you think with the current Brexit deal you can get there or what other added vitamins do you need to get where you would like to be? Yeah, I mean, I, I would say um, to Bruno, I think the UK economy has got tremendous strengths. I think there are many industries, obviously, where we have an incredibly strong potential for the future. But it's very important that we work extremely hard to maintain that potential and build it into the future. How do we do that? I think there are a number of uh, different actions that need to be taken. First of all, uh, around trade. And I would say, you know, there is the potential for obviously substantial disruption to trade, you know, because of the kind of things that we've been seeing recently with COVID. But of course, we've had the impact of the government's approach to Brexit as well. I think there it's very important that we see measures being adopted, which ensure that we 
uh, aren't disadvantaged from unfair competition. So we've actually got very weak trade protections in the UK now compared to in the rest of the EU um, and similar major economies. I think that needs to be dealt with. Um, we need to be ensuring that we're actually buttressing those aspects of the UK's economy that draws investment towards us. Um, if you look at financial services, for example, and related professional services, that very reliable um, rule of law, the fact that a contract concluded in London um, you know, is known to be held to, that it always will be, that there's that really um, strong probity uh, within um, the City of London and across the UK's financial services. It's very important that we uh, really seek to build on that into the future. I mean, I was very concerned about the impact of some of the threats previously to break international law. That's exactly the last thing we should be doing to protect our competitive position. But then I think we also need to be facing up to those long-term challenges to economic competitiveness that I mentioned before. You know, the, the big skills and training challenges where in many cases we've been moving, sadly, in the wrong direction, the big competition challenges and also those issues around the returns to innovation. I think we do need to deal with those long run questions. If we just sit back, um, then unfortunately we are likely to see um, uh, the kind of decline that none of us would, would want to uh, put up with. Really, we need to see that concerted action to work much harder um, uh, to build the UK's competitiveness into the future. Okay, I am. Um... I think now, unfortunately, we end the final time here, a final question here. So uh, uh, I think we've uh, you know, grilled you, um, but uh, let's have one final one. And I'll, I'll just um, pick here the question that the last uh, by Alistair Brown. Uh, so um, like to your view, he would like to hear um, the view on the Conservatives levelling up agenda, which is you know, supposedly to reduce inequality, especially you know, in a regional sense as well. So, so um, you know, kind of... Um, you know, will you pressure them to sort of deliver on that kind of policy? How would you do this? Uh, you know, do you have confidence even in, I mean, that's not the question, that's my addition to the question is, you know, do you have confidence in the capacities of the, you know, kind of the government per se to, to deliver on such an agenda? Yeah, well, I think it's a very important question. And actually, unfortunately, the crisis has intensified many of those regional inequalities. So holding everything else equal, you're more likely to become unemployed and indeed to have suffered very severe health impact from COVID um, if you live in the north of the UK um, compared to in the south. So we really have seen an increase in those regional inequalities. I think we've seen then quite a lot of talk, uh, but really not sufficient delivery around those inequalities. And I would say that's the case in, in two directions. First of all, um, I would relate this back to the previous discussion about delivery of infrastructure. You know, we've seen so many projects being announced, sometimes announced a number of times and either not being delivered or not even being started. I mean, you look at, uh, for example, um, Crossrail for the North, um, which, you know, everybody would say, well, it would really need to have that, um, you know, Northern Powerhouse uh, Rail. Sadly, although we have had many commitments towards that, it's not even been fully approved as a, scheme, Northern Powerhouse Rail. Um, so, you know, too much rhetoric, I would say, and not enough actual delivery on many of those projects. How do we improve that? I think we do that not by a centrally driven process again. I mean, if you look at the Beechings reopening system, for example, in the UK, that relies on individual MPs going and making a pitch to the Department of Transport. I think that is completely the wrong way around. This process should be driven by local areas identifying where the problems are with transport connectivity and other forms of infrastructure. Uh, connectivity, and then themselves deciding how this needs to be uh, sorted out and ensuring that we then get the right investment put in. So that needs to be sorted out. But then I would say also, this isn't just and should not be uh, about, um, you know, kind of shiny photo opportunities for politicians with hard hats on uh, next to new railway stations. New railway stations, of course, are important, and we need to make sure that they're put in where they're required. But actually, if we're not dealing with, for example, high childcare costs, if we're not dealing with a lack of transport with buses, for example, to get to where the jobs are. That's very often what people would rely on if we're not dealing with uh, poor quality housing. Then actually those factors which hold back people across so much of the UK are not going to be effectively dealt with. So let's really focus on people's quality of life in different parts of the country. Let's have a longer term perspective. I think that's what would genuinely be tackling those regional inequalities rather than perhaps some projects which might attract the photocall, but are they really going to change people's lives into the future? That's the big question. 
Okay, Annelise, um, unfortunately, we've come to the end of our um, allotted time. So, um, so thank you, uh, dear audience, uh, for uh, being part of um, this session. Thank you very much for all the vibrant questions you posed. And uh, I apologize that uh, we, you know, I didn't manage to pick your question if you feel uh, disgruntled that I didn't, uh, but, uh, but I hope I managed to do justice to the spread of questions. But most of all, many, many thanks to uh, Annalise uh, for spending her lunchtime hour with us and uh, giving us uh, uh, sort of uh, answers uh, and sort of a lot of thought as um, thinking um, to do for us uh, uh, for the coming weeks and months as uh, we might come out of COVID times uh, once again. So uh, thank you, Annalise, very, very much. And uh, thank you, everyone, for participating. Bye-bye.